Welcome to the Trinity Reformed Church Podcast. To find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com. Along with Jephthah's rash vow, Elisha's boy-gorging she-bears, in the baby-bashing crescendo of Psalm 137, few passages promise to wreck your morning coffee in quiet time, like the sin of Ham, though perhaps more should wreck it than we realize. The story of Ham is unique, not so much for its shock factor, but its sheer complexity and obscurity. Indeed, this passage requires much carefulness and even more literary imagination. That is, the ability to recall and synthesize other biblical themes, plots, and symbols. Whereas in the previous essay the point was roundly negative, namely race was not the point of the story, we will here establish positively the second point that was introduced in Article 1. Though there is no curse on Ham, Ham committed a sin that brought about a curse on his son Canaan. In the previous installment, we noted that portraying the sin of Ham and the blessing of Shem and Japheth as racial is highly dubious at best, and even outright fallacious at worst. Beyond those arguments, we must now consider the simple fact that when we approach the stories of the Noahic Epoch, we are working within a specific redemptive historical context. There are at least two aspects of the Noahic context, one micro and one macro. The macro context of the Noahic Epoch is the wilderness wandering of Israel. Though this may sound anachronistic at first, consider when and by whom the story is being written. Jesus tells us that Moses wrote the Pentateuch. When did he write it? Our options are very limited. It is unlikely that he was writing during the first 40 years of Egyptian education, nor his 40 years in the Midianite sojourning. He certainly could have, but he would have had no reason to. Moreover, he dies outside of the Promised Land. So, Occam's Razor tells us to go with the simplest explanation. Genesis was written at the same time that Moses was commanded to write the other books of the Torah to form the historical background of Israel's new liturgical national arrangement. But why does it matter? It matters because if we are going to understand what is actually going on in this passage and draw legitimate and helpful insights from it, we must remember that context determines content. The errors refuted in the context established, we may now note what is actually happening in this passage. Before the Hamite transgression, we see mankind over and over in scenes of violent grasps for power each ending in Italianic judgment. For example, Adam wishes to be the arbiter of judgment by taking forbidden produce. Thus, he's made subject to a curse mediated by thorny fruit. Cain desires to be the gatekeeper of Eden instead of his brother's keeper. Thus, he is made a wanderer. Nimrod wants the power of political and liturgical unity in Babel, but he brings political and liturgical confusion across the earth. This Talionic pattern is important to note since one of the most widespread interpretations of Ham's sin is that it involves some sort of paternal molestation formed based on a misreading of, quote, saw his father's nakedness as a case of, quote, laying bare the nakedness of a family member, which was prohibited on pain of expulsion 
in Leviticus 18. Beyond the point that these verses are not uh, linguistically related, if this were the case, or if it were a case of family incest, the punishment would not fit the crime. As Noah was taught by Yahweh to punish blood shedding with blood letting, Noah would not have cursed Canaan with subjugation in return for some sort of copulation. The divine standard of talionic justice would be broken. Instead, we must remember that in this scene, we are explicitly told about the occasion of the transgression, a garment removed and a garment restored. In Genesis and beyond, garments or mantles are symbols of royal authority. Like his ancestors and progeny, what Ham, a distorted image bearer, wants primarily is not pleasure, but power. Furthermore, the fact that the response of the brothers is to re-robe their father is a symbolic act that shows their unwillingness to conspire against his authority. Ham's sin is thus revolutionary, seeking domination, absolute and autonomous liberation. By revolution, he finds subjugation. This further explains why the curse falls on Canaan, his son. Isn't this unjust? Doesn't it violate Ezekiel 18.20? Again, keep in mind the context. What is going on here is either a prospective or reactive curse on a rising civilization to keep them from replicating the ways of Ham, just as the civilization of Enoch replicated Cain's murderous ways in Genesis 4. Just as the soon-coming institution of circumcision was to be a stifling of the fleshly virility of Abraham's impatience in Genesis 16 and 17, the subjugation here is meant to be a stifling of either blatant or burgeoning tyranny from Ham's youngest son. For all through Scripture, the sinful bent of the non-eldest sons is to usurp their older siblings. Think of the troublemakers in covenant history. Ham, he's Noah's middle son. Canaan and Nimrod are the youngest sons of their clan. Loathsome Amalek is a bastard offspring of Esau's firstborn. The youngest must always push down the impatient unbelief that God would never let them suffer under the hands of their inept and implacable prodigals and is instead calling the younger to rise up and overthrow the elder. This pattern is even seen in Israel. When the youngest son, Benjamin, is declared by the patriarchal pronouncement of Jacob to be, quote, a ravenous wolf, devouring the prey, dividing the spoil, end quote, the prophecy is fulfilled later when a Levite, the tribe of priest, brings a Judean prostitute, the tribe of kings, into their territory, and the entire tribe of Benjamin, quote, come together out of the cities to Gibeah to go out to battle against the people of Israel. Thus the curse on Canaan by the sin of Ham is God's plan to circumvent this sinful pattern of the younger brother until the final younger brother of humanity can undo this pattern not by law, but by grace, by self-sacrifice rather than self-assertion. So situated in the proper redemptive historical context, the sin of Ham plainly shows itself to be revolutionary rather than either racial or sexual in nature. This passage thus has much more contemporary application than we first expect. It means at least that legitimate authority may never be usurped, no matter how liberal, drunken, or foolish it may seem at a given moment. 
God works his righteousness in the world through our patiently bearing with the corrupt and contemptible powers by miraculously delivering us from them. Compare the narratives of the Exodus or David's refusal to kill the tyrant when he had the chance or the crucifixion of the Son of God. It means likewise that those who are most susceptible to this revolutionary tendency are those of little esteem. In a negative world culture in which the church is afflicted with both inept, unqualified rulers and held in little esteem by those rulers, the body of Christ must be on constant guard against falling for the revolutionary tactics of Ham and embrace the biblical pattern of faithful suffering, which always leads to public, glorious vindication. Thanks for listening. To find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com. Amen.